agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, political and policy analyst, Kristen Matheny. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you, Kristen? I'm good. Happy Saturday. Yes. Uh, you know, and before we get started, and we have an awful lot to cover, I first want to thank our newest sustaining supporter on Patreon, Quentin. Thank you so much. And of course, when you're a Patreon supporter, you get not only that second full-length episode every week, you get ad-free versions of all of our shows, as well as other things at different levels of support. To check it out, go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And as you all know, I hope by now that if you uh, would like all that bonus content, but you can't afford to become a financial supporter, it's not a problem. Just send me an email, mikeypoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up. Also, this is our last show before the uh, new year. We always take off that week between Christmas and New Year's for a little bit of a break. And uh, Before we get to our first story this week, I just want to let everyone know about the future of the politics guys in 2021. Uh, In an episode early this year, I said that for at least least the last, I can speak, threes, I need more (laughs) coffee, Kristen. Anyway, for at least the last three years, I have promised my wife, my incredible, awesome, very patient wife, that if I couldn't put the politics guys on sort of a sustainable financial footing this year... I would end the podcast. And uh, I've told her this multiple years now, and I've never followed through. And at, at this year, beginning of this year, I said, you know, I can't do this to her again. It's just not right. Because even though the politics guys means an awful lot to me, I put a, a lot of myself into it. Uh, my, my wife means a whole lot more to me than any podcast. Uh, and so I did some math in early February this year and concluded that if we could get just 5% of our listeners to support us on a monthly basis, we'd be where we need to be. And that was sort of the goal that I announced in, in early that year. And at that point, we had around 2% of listeners supporting the show. Well, today we are at 3.5%, which is a pretty good increase. That, you know, it's not the 5% we were shooting for, mm-hmm. but considering what we've been living with through 2020, um, I think, you know, that's pretty good. And combined with the fact that we're now getting some help with the occasional ad placement, uh, I say that's enough to give me a to give me a, a stay of execution, if you will, and to continue uh, <laughs> keeping the politics guys going through 2021. And I just didn't decide this. I consulted with my wife on this and she said, yes, you have my blessing. You can do this in the next year. So <laughs> there you go. And, and I just really want to thank everyone who's helped to keep the show going in what has been a very, very trying year. And that's both new supporters and those who've been with us for, well, for years now. And I also want to thank everyone who checked out, you know, one or more of our sponsors by going to that, you know, politics guys link that they always have at the end, because that matters. They track that stuff. Uh, Kristen, you're very familiar with how, you know, advertisers track things and all that. And (laughs) and that matters, you know, that's how they decide, well, we'll buy another campaign. And that, that makes a big difference. And so we really do appreciate that. And finally, thanks to everyone who's helped to increase our audience size and by especially spreading the word on social media, you know, email, I don't know, carrier pigeon, whatever you do, it, it that makes a difference too. And we really do appreciate it because you guys are great. And I just feel incredibly lucky to be doing this podcast for you. And I'm also very grateful for my really stellar hosting partners, uh, Kristen, Jay, uh, Trey. I don't get a chance to do the show with Ken a whole lot, but I love doing that. And and of course, our fantastic executive producers. You made uh, an awful 2020 great for this podcast, and I am most definitely looking forward to 2021. So thanks very much. Okay. Well, with that, Kristen, why don't we uh, get on with, with our first story today? Yeah, so um, the first big story we have is something that's been going on, a lot of wrangling in Washington during these final weeks of the year. Um, And the story is going to be about the COVID stimulus package. That's still a big question mark um, coming into next week. So late last night, late Friday night, um, Congress approved a stopgap two-day extension in funding for the federal government to buy a little more time as Republicans and Democrats sort of duke it out over this $900 billion COVID relief package. 
And um, the House and Senate approved. President Trump signed this measure, this two-day stopgap measure into law, and and here we are today. So um, if we take a closer look, just to kind of sum things up, if you haven't been watching the news, it's been a busy week. So, you know, I, I understand if you're not watching the news, but uh, taking a closer look at the package, um, Congress will spend uh, the next few days debating and will likely see a second stimulus check for qualifying adults and dependents. I saw reports of both 600 and $700. Um, it kind of varies between sources, but this is what uh, is sort of in the works and, and in talks in D.C. And renewals of a handful of benefits, as well as a possible $300 weekly federal unemployment check. And that would be in addition to that second stimulus check um, for out-of-work Americans. And that would continue for 10 to 16 weeks. So those are kind of like the overarching points of this new um, stimulus package. And of course, you know, like I said, Republicans and Democrats are wrangling over this quite a bit. And there, are, there seem to be some sticking points and there's a little bit of bipartisanship going on uh, on the Hill. So I don't know, what what's your take on it, Mike? I was curious to see your thoughts and where you think this is going to lead. Well, you know, for the last few weeks, I've been uh, very skeptical about whether this would happen at all. Yeah. And uh, now I am far less skeptical, but it seems to me what's basically happened is uh, the Democrats have acceded to just about all of the Republicans' demands. And, you know, remember, this started with back in, geez, I took, gosh, it was back in March, I guess, with <laughs> the $3 trillion Heroes Act. And then that went nowhere. And so then it was uh, the $2.2 trillion Heroes Act 2.0. Uh, and then we got to this uh, 900, roughly $900 billion thing. But, you you know, it's important to to kind of put this in the context because it's nine right now we're looking at around nine hundred billion dollars. And uh, for a long time, Republicans in the Senate have said, well, we could go as high as five hundred billion. Now, you'd say, well, nine hundred's higher than five hundred, certainly. And that means that Republicans have given something too. well, maybe not so much. It, it, this really depends because one thing one big thing that's going on right now is the question about about the four hundred twenty nine billion dollars that the Fed received for uh, to, to give uh, to give various loans. And now right. that was under that was under the CARES Act and that expired that expires. Sorry. At the end of December. And Pat Toomey and some others want to put language in saying that that cannot be reestablished. And so if you minus that 429 billion if that goes through, then actually this would come in at around 471 billion in new spending. So basically the Democrats are being asked to do all the compromising here and 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 I get that because the Republicans are in a stronger position. I mean, number one, it's a lot easier to kill something than to pass something. And, and number two, especially when you're the majority party in, in the Senate and the presidency. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that's not that's not surprising to me. Uh, it's it's less than what I'd hoped in a lot of ways, especially especially this awful idea. And I never thought I'd say this, but uh, uh, this is a weird phrase coming out of my mouth. I agree with Ron Johnson. Is that? Wow. Um, uh, but, <laughs> you, you know, he basically said this $1,200 that was there was a you know a vote in the or talk about a vote yeah. in the Senate on that saying that's just yeah. not right and not targeted enough. And I totally agree. I'm actually opposed to another round of even $600 stimulus checks. And that would cost, by my calculation, somewhere around $150 billion. And it seems to me that would be much, much better to target that toward increased unemployment aid as well as uh, or maybe along with putting more into the Paycheck Protection Program for businesses. So, I mean, you know, I, I would pro I'll probably get if this goes through, I'll probably get a, a check, you know, for I don't know, probably not the full six hundred dollars, but uh, a certain amount. And I think, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because I have a relatively secure job and I took a little bit of a hit, you know, a pay cut and some other stuff, but I'm not hurting like people who've lost their jobs. So I think this is, I think this is definitely not targeted well enough. And I'm very disappointed that this, that they're spending, it uh, looks like around $150 billion on something like that. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I saw a tweet and I don't remember who tweeted it. Um, I kind of lurk on Twitter. I'm not really active, but um, I saw a tweet and somebody said, how dare Congress um, start getting vaccines and they can't even leave for the week 
without um, <laughs> passing a stimulus package. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's it's actually, you know, a lot of people are really upset about this. We, you know, they can't get their act together. Um, you know, I agree with you. And, and actually, I was I wasn't expecting you to say that you agreed with Ron Johnson. So that did catch me by surprise. <laughs> but, you know, and, I, and the thing is, like, I don't always agree with Ron Johnson either. You know, I'm a pretty critical Republican. And, and I, you know, sometimes I agree with Republicans and sometimes I don't. But I agree with him here. And for the same reason you agree with him. I think that, um, you know, just kind of like handing out, you know, Bernie Sanders is uh, advocating for these direct payments and he refuses to move forward unless there are there are these direct payments, but they seem awfully vague. Um, and the terms seem awfully vague. And I know, you know, Ron Johnson basically cited this, um, this package that was brought forth. Um, I think it was, oh gosh, was it October, September? It was earlier in the fall, I think, um, that talked about um, uh, having another round of uh, money and payments for the uh, Paycheck Protection Program. And there's, you know, another round of debate for liability reform. And this seems, again, not, not to echo what you're saying, but I sort of am. I mean, that seemed to make a lot more sense to me because it seemed to be directly affecting the people who need it most. And, you know, I, I get I get where Bernie Sanders is coming from, and I was surprised to see that Josh Hawley actually kind of jumped on the, the same train. That was like a weird union, but you know I, I get where they're coming from. I get why people like direct payments. I I get their purpose, but I think in this case that sticking point is is worth debating. Yeah, and I also I agree with you a hundred percent on that point. Yeah, and I mean I I think again it's just a matter of who's who's hurting the most. And how do we get them the money? And that's that's a big, you know, it's a big right. disappointment, certainly. Also, I think, you know, it's important to point out that I think one thing that's brought not not so much brought Republicans to the table. I mean, Mitch McConnell was saying, you know, we're at first we're not going to do anything without the liability protections, which, you know, Jay and I talked about that last week. And I just yep. felt that for that basically that's a poison pill. It's not really mean. It doesn't really mean much of anything except the, the uh, rationale or some sort of you know cover for not doing anything. But now I think you know the Republicans are looking at Georgia and saying you know Ossoff and Warnock they're kind of pushing, slamming Purdue and Loeffler for not delivering on stimulus. And so putting together some sort of a package helps to mute that criticism, especially with, you can say, not only are we do, doing something, but we're getting checks directly to Georgians, you know, and this is, you know, thanks to Purdue and Loeffler and a Republican Senate. And so you should vote for us. And I think that's, that's certainly helping things along a little bit. And uh, I, I guess one other thing I have a problem with is this tying the unemployment benefits to uh, some sort of arbitrary number of weeks. You know, at first it was yeah. the, the bipartisan proposal was 16 weeks and now it's down to 10. It's like, well, and, what is yeah. it just because it's a round number 10? I mean, it seems to me that if you're going to do this from a rational standpoint, you would you would make it open ended or at least maybe have a, you know, a, a certain cutoff point, but make it dependent on what unemployment levels are, because that's the whole point of this is to, you know, for a stimulus during a time of unusual unemployment. And so why they don't do that, I, I, I don't know, because you could certainly say, well, we're going to make a cutoff at six months, a hard cutoff, but it will cut off before then if unemployment reaches a certain level. And that to me would be a far more rational way of doing it. Yeah, I, t I totally agree with you again. Um, I, you know, it's, it's funny because I was, um, I was talking to a coworker of mine yesterday, sort of a like-minded coworker, and we were talking about the you know stimulus package and kind of this waffling back and forth and these sticking points. And I mentioned the same thing. I mentioned like, well, what's the deal with ten with ten weeks? Is that just like a digestible? I said the same thing. Like, is it is that like a digestible number for the media to present to people? You know, I I think I, as weird as it sounds, my if my background in advertising has has taught me anything, it's that people like nice round numbers. Yeah. Like you said, and it's digestible. Um, they also like direct payments. These things are are what essentially get votes because I, I think what people, what most Americans don't understand um, is what goes on behind the scenes. What they absorb is, you know, what they're being told and being told 16 weeks or 10 weeks, that's something they can count on. Um, it's something they can plan for, whereas leaving something open-ended makes a whole lot more sense policy-wise. And it could make sense financially too, in terms of, you know, 
know, putting us in debt. If, if, you know, if something doesn't have to take 16 weeks, for example, it doesn't have to take it. Um, but leaving it open ended, um, just seems like it makes more sense, but it certainly is not going to get anybody any votes and it's not going to win any favor because people like numbers. They like to be able to plan for things. I mean, gosh, 16 weeks out, that's four months from now. It just, it seems it, 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 it could be less than that. It could be more than that. Um, but ultimately after 10 weeks or after 16 weeks, we're going to find ourselves right back here exactly. again talking about this yeah. and so it just it just seems futile yeah 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 and the other point i want, wanted to point out is there's been a lot of talk about again that 429 billion dollars for yeah. the, the fed's uh lending ability and and i think it's important to keep in mind that yeah, this has been talked about as a potential democrat bailout to state sort of thing if they can't get state funding but there's an important distinction to be made here between direct funding to states which which is a lot of Democrats were arguing for, and I, I actually would argue for. I believe it could be done in a way that wouldn't, that wouldn't encourage bad behavior by spendthrift blue states or something like that. But putting that aside, you know, Federal Reserve loans are designed to be paid back as opposed to money that is just given out and is not designed to be paid back. So that's not like a $429 billion loss. And in fact, a lot of that money probably wouldn't be lent out. A big part of that is just knowing that it's there helps to increase confidence in, in the markets and, 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 and the financial system and so forth. And so I think it's wrong to equate that with a bailout to the states, especially because this would be the Fed doing this and it wouldn't be a bunch of, you know, Democrat politicians trying to you know feed at the trial. It would be the, yeah. the Fed, which is controlled by, by the way, uh, Trump appointees almost exclusively. So I find that argument to be uh, confusing and, and, and in some cases, I think maybe even a bit disingenuous. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, Republicans, um, especially pundits who are kind of making the rounds on radio shows and TV shows right now are painting this in a way that's misleading for exactly what you just said. Um, You know, if Congress has the power of the purse and they're not the ones necessarily bailing out blue states, which are arguably much more affected by COVID, um, you know, especially these large population centers tend to be Democrat run cities, um, you know, for for better or for worse. And, you know, it's not going to be these direct payments like a reward system. You know, I'm friends with Andrew Cuomo. So New York, New York City is going to get X, Y, Z amount of money. This is something that's going to be done by the Fed and it's and it's being painted in a in a misleading way. I mean, I think there need to be some ramifications in place for, you know, how exactly that funding more, you know, not necessarily restrictions, but just a framework for how that funding will be doled out. But, you know, ultimately, um, this is what a lot of Republicans argue for just in terms of philosophy is is that um, the states receive money and do what they see fit with that money um, right. because nobody nobody is is more is better equipped to and I believe this with all my heart nobody is better equipped to handle the goings on within a state and within cities better than the state itself um, rather than coming from the federal government making these direct payments so I mean I think I think you could make a pretty conservative argument for federal officials giving money, or I should say federal authorities giving money to states to bail their state out as they see fit and, you know, sort of allowing that to be within the discretion of the state itself. Yeah, absolutely. This week, yeah, we've, we've got a lot to cover. Um, so this week, um, something very interesting came to light, um, a little different from the stuff we normally talk about. Um, federal authorities were very concerned about um, a likely Russian hack that went for a long time undetected. Um, and it was it mostly occurred here in the United States, although there were countries all over the world that were affected by this hack. Um, and it may the these Russian hackers may have breached computer systems here in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. Like I said, uh, the Department of Energy was one of the first agencies that acknowledged the hacking. Um, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency uh, stated that the attack appeared to be quite sophisticated, very sophisticated, so much so that it went undetected for so long. Um, and Microsoft actually identified over 40 government agencies, NGOs, think tanks, tech companies that possibly were victims of this hacking. And 
And of course, you know, just to sort of lead us into the policy angle of this story, this presents some serious foreign policy problems. And moreover, maybe more importantly, it's just a huge concern for those of us, you know, who are in the market um, or those of us who are consumers. Um, the fact that this happened, it may have been um, there was talk that it, that it might be the most sophisticated and serious hacking that's ever taken place. <laughs> and of course, hacking is something that um, is relatively new. So we're still sort of feeling things out in terms of policy. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of a, a warning call uh, that we need to take some safeguards and we maybe need to start thinking about the foreign policy problems that could arise from this. So I don't know, this this story was really interesting. I was following it all week. What about you, Mike? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's, we need to distinguish between sort of normal intelligence gathering activities and sort of uh, espionage and breaking into and, and, and manipulating systems. And generally speaking, it seems like there's a certain accepted level of, uh, you know, state to state espionage that takes place right. if you just kind of pop into a system if you can and get some stuff and, and pull out. And that's like more or less, and we do that all the time, certainly, and you know, all major actors do that or try to do that at least. But it seems like this is different in that it is it was so widespread. Mm -hmm. And so as opposed to more of a targeted type of thing, well, it, it should be pointed out that as far as we know, no, there's been no public announcement about breaches of classified systems. So just sort Nothing. of like administrative yeah. systems. And that is, that is an important distinction to make, certainly. But again, my thinking is even if there were, I don't know if exactly did they be telling the New York Times or the or the Washington Post that that was you know that that was the case. So that's why I said no publicly announced. But I guess it's a disappointment to me in a big way because you would have thought that after that big Chinese hack of OPM in 2015, where they had social mm -hmm. security numbers and all that stuff, and then the Russian election stuff in 2016, that that enhanced security of government systems would have been a, a top priority. And, you know, back in 2018, there was that warning from uh, from GAO about that multi-billion dollar Einstein system uh, -huh. uh that uh that hey by the way it can't actually identify new threats it's like well you think that's a problem maybe so uh and that just went ignored so it's pretty clear that we need to spend a lot more time and effort on better securing our systems and i expect that that will happen though not uh, not until there is a major investigation and uh, let's hope some heads roll on this one yeah, I, um, you know, it's it's funny because a, a lot of pundits were coming out this week and saying, like, why hasn't been, there been a major announcement? Why don't we have more clarity? And really, federal authorities were keeping things pretty, you know, close to their chest. They weren't they weren't revealing their hands. Um, the fact that the Department of Energy came out and admitted that they were one of the ones hacked was was, you know, kind of all eyeballs turned to them. And, and I think that's when people started taking it seriously this week, because in the beginning, it sounded like it may have just been tech companies. But the more we learned, um, it wasn't just NGOs and tech companies. It was also, you know, places where. Um, you know, classified data, like you said, could have been breached and there could be some some really telling repercussions from all of this. You know, we have no idea how far this went. Um, I mean, even yesterday, there were reports um, that were surfacing that, you know, there were countries around the world, like I saw United Arab Emirates, some countries in Europe had, you know, companies and, and government agencies had been hacked. So this was really a lot more widespread, like the tentacles went really far with this one. And I think that's what caught people off guard. But, you know, the fact that the that the feds haven't made, you know, a big and sweeping announcement and the fact that it kind of remained off the radar with most media sources this week doesn't surprise me, um, you know, until there is an investigation. I, you know, it's it's funny because a, a lot of people criticized and I criticized uh, President Trump when he eliminated this, the cybersecurity chief position. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was something that when, when it happened, um, you know, I, I it, it was it blipped on my radar. I was like, well, wh why is he why is he doing that? Because I feel like every single day, you know, with every single day that passes, um, cybersecurity 
you know, is is breached and, and the fact that, you know, we have these uh, foreign entities and these, you know, private hackers working for themselves or, or maybe through, you know, for these crime syndicates in other countries or even in our own country, the fact that they're gaining more and more ground, you know, these cybersecurity systems have become more and more vulnerable and eliminating that position was something I criticized when he did it because um, it seemed like, you know, he was trying to dismantle that. And, and I think this is probably a pretty poor time to make a policy decision like that. Um, so my hope going forward is that we actually ramp up, we increase funding for cybersecurity, that we um, inform uh, the CISA accordingly, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, that we you know inform them and that we fund them more and that we reestablish a position like that so that we, you know, we can fight this, you know, not from behind, but, you know, sort of play I guess, play offense instead of yeah. defense. Because right now we're just playing defense. And I think that's why nobody heard about it and nobody cared, but we should care. Yeah. And, you know, President Trump, as as recently as Thursday, a few days uh, we're recording Saturday morning, threatened to veto the Defense Appropriations Act, which actually has a number of measures yep. to help increase security. He Now, he, he's not threatening to veto it over that. He's, his big things are, as we talked about in the past, Section 230 and Confederate names on military bases and that sort of thing. And it, you know, it would be as not the ninth veto of his administration. And I would bet if he actually did veto it, it would, it would very likely be the first override, uh, be, especially even given the fact that it passed with, uh, I believe, in both chambers with a uh, uh-huh. veto-proof majority. I would expect that Congress would come back in early, right after Christmas, and, and the last act would override that veto. And so I'm wondering, well, two things, Kristen, I guess. Number one, do you think that there will be a veto and then an override? And number two, are you surprised by President Trump? Trump's uh, essential, it seems like, complete lack of response, at least public response on this. Um, I do expect for there to be a veto override. As for for President Trump, this is, you know, I've said on the show, I'm not just like a like a, a dyed in the wool Trump Trumpian. Sure. You know, I this is one area that I think Republicans just generally lag behind in. Um, and it's and it could be because I deal with technology and I'll, that's my background is in, you know, essentially STEM technology and algorithms. And I and I see the need to, you know, to, to be more proactive and more aggressive when it comes to protecting our infrastructures. I mean, this was done by essentially hacking private software, private you know, private firm software, it, it was done in this revolutionary, very sophisticated way. And the fact that it went undetected for so long, we don't even know how long it went undetected. Um, and so while that's, while all of this is in place and while it's being investigated, I hope that, I mean, it's too late now for this, but I hope this is a, that this is a rallying cry for my fellow Republicans, you know, so that they see how essential it is to create these positions of authority when it comes to cybersecurity and to allow for more funding of cybersecurity agencies in the United States. I'm not surprised, though, um, to your second question, I'm not surprised that um, President Trump hasn't spoken out about it. I think that he is... I think it's in line with what's going on with federal authorities now. They, like I said, they're remaining pretty tight-lipped about it, and I understand why they're remaining tight-lipped about it. But I would say if he, you know, goes the rest of his term without, you know, talking about it and without addressing it, I would say that would be pretty problematic. But I, I understand, and it doesn't surprise me that he hasn't come out and said anything. Yeah, no, um, I don't expect him to. That the Department of Energy came out and said anything yeah. at all, actually. Well, you know, to be fair, he's he's, you know, in the middle of moving and that's always a stressful thing. It takes a lot oh, of I know. time and effort. <laughs> and of course, I, you know, the kind of an aside that now it seems like he might not actually be able to move to where he wants to move, because uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but Mar-a-Lago, they when, when he turned it into a when he turned it into a club, there was a, a compact that was signed where it was agreed that no one would live there permanently. And now they're talking about, well, you can't live there. And I guess he says, well, yes, I can, because I'm Donald Trump and I can do what I want. So I don't know. But anyway, he's got a lot on his mind. He still apparently thinks he won the election or is saying that. And so I think especially given the fact that this involves Russia and that is just a very touchy subject for him in general, that, you know, it's just not the kind of thing he's going to make any sort of a, any sort of a comment. And what can you say? Yes, we failed horrifically. I, I You know, it's not the kind of thing where he's going to make make a comment. But in terms of what we can do going forward, I think, you know, in People are talking about sanctioning Russia and that sort of thing. 
We already have quite a lot of sanctions yeah. on various. So it's not like you can like, double seek, double sanction somebody. I mean, you know, it, <laughs> it, it gets to a point where, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily make much of a difference. And so the best thing you can probably do is just, uh, as you pointed out, is make sure that you have that security infrastructure in place and that you make that job one. Because this stuff is, it's always easier to penetrate a system than it is to defend the system. And this is just going to get worse as more and more, more and more state actors have the ability to, to do this sort of thing. Right. And I mean, this is obviously the, the every, you know, the story, this ongoing antitrust lawsuit with Google is a story we'll, we'll probably get to either in this show later or, or in the next show um, and, you know, yeah. in the other show we're going to record. But, um, you know, it's, it's funny because I've, I've said to you before that I thought again, that this was an area that Republicans have really lagged behind on. And, and one of the things that I would like to see moving forward is more, less of an adversarial relationship between government and big tech and more of a, like a partnership. Um, because I mean, I look at, I look at the partnership that's been formed between like SpaceX, a private entity, and NASA, this huge government agency. And I'm a total space nerd. I'm a Floridian. A lot of us are space nerds here. We go to Kennedy Space Center a lot. And and I, you know, I found that really exciting because I think it's it's um, you know, it's been this partnership that's worked for for both the agency and for the company. And, you know, I think it's it's promoted space travel, space flight innovation in ways that we never could have dreamed. And I think it's a really good example of how, a, you know, the, a public private partnership in a way can work. And I would hope that moving forward, we I mean, I'm not saying we should jump right into a relationship with, you know, some of these private entities. But because this hack happened within a private entity, maybe it's time that we think about as part of this cybersecurity infrastructure, forming these relationships, having less of an adversary relationship with private entities and, and these corporations and maybe working with them um, to, you know, to sort of like tighten up the, the hatches, so to speak, um, because Microsoft really was on the forefront of of um, of figuring all this out. Um, you know, they, they were one of the first to really sound the alarm, as were some other private tech companies. Um, you know, so I think I think combining our efforts, sort of joining, uh, would be something wise to think about policy-wise in the future. Hmm. I, I hadn't hadn't really considered that. I I tend to look askance. Uh, I think my general inclination is to look askance at public-private partnerships, but uh, but I can certainly <laughs> see that from a conservative policy standpoint, where that yeah. might be. Uh, I can't help it. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. You know. So anyway, uh, yeah. So you know, we haven't uh, we haven't yet really talked directly about uh, the presidential election, which took place, it seems like a million years ago, but it is, yeah. I guess this week it got one step closer to being over, at least in most people's minds, right? Yeah, the Electoral College. So yeah, this week, um, I, I actually, I think the biggest story to come out of this week was that uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, your favorite person, right? <laughs> <laughs> He uh, formally recognized Joe Biden as president-elect following the Electoral College vote. And, you know, they both mentioned they plan to speak soon. Um, you know, they uh, serve together. They're, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know who's friends with who in the Senate, but I assume that they have a cordial relationship, I have to imagine. Um, you know, they've known each other a long time. Um, and, if, and some other Republicans have joined Mitch McConnell in doing the same thing. Um, and there, there are, on the other side, there are a few House GOP members who are eyeing a challenge to the congressional tallying of the electoral results, which will take place on, I think, January 6th. Mm -hmm. Um, and that includes Jim Jordan, Mo Brooks, um, a few others. And um, and of course, uh, we can't say all of this without mentioning Trump advisor Stephen Miller. Oh, God. I, I, I'm not a fan either. Uh, who suggested that his allies may send uh, alternate state electors to Congress. And this is something he discussed kind of on the on the nightly news shows this week. Um essentially writing the wrong, those are his words, not mine, of a fraudulent election. So yeah, so to kind of throw it back to the beat, the beginning of this summary, um, you know, Mitch McConnell came out, he formally recognized Joe Biden as the president elect. And uh, yeah, kind of the, the chips fell, fell where they may, I guess. Um, well, I mean, but yeah, that was that was the big news to come out of this week in my in my head. Well, what, what do you make of this whole, I mean, uh, the idea that a top advisor to the president would say, oh, we're going to send alternate electors to Congress. I mean, it, uh, how how do you even process that sort of thing? It just seems so 
bizarre and so entirely against any sort of constitutional or democratic norm. I, I you know, I, I help me out here. I mean, there, I can't really help you out here because, mm-hmm. <laughs> because, <laughs> because he, you know, Stephen Miller is, you know, famous for his for his posturing, and I think that this is all this is 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 posturing. Um, it's not really feasible to say that you're going to send alternate, uh, you know, these alternate electors, these allies of the president, um, these state electors to to Congress on January sixth to to right a, a wrong. You know, the 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 issue of voter fraud is you know something that and, and you know election fraud I should say is something that's ongoing. I think it's something we definitely have to address. Um, but the the way to address that is in the courts and, you know, you know, trying to essentially what Democrats are accusing Republicans of is trying to overthrow an election. And while I think that some of the efforts haven't necessarily been to that end, sending alternate electors to Congress would essentially be doing just that. And I, so, yeah, I mean, I, I can't really defend the indefensible. This would never work. It's not feasible. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, Stephen Miller is um, famous for yeah. for posturing, yeah. I guess. And I think that's all this is. One, one thing that isn't posturing, I think, is on January 6th, there almost certainly will be an objection to, I would have guessed, uh, probably Georgia's electors and or and possibly Pennsylvania's electors. And I think I think Jim Jordan and uh, Mo Brooks are going to fall all over themselves to be the, the first ones to object, you know, in, the, in their race to be the, the president's number one lapdog and sycophant, you know. Uh, but uh, the big question, of course, is whether or not there will be a senator who will go along with that. And I think a lot of people are looking at maybe Tommy Tuberville, who, you know, uh, yep. yeah, who's, who has said it's impossible. It's impossible. What happened about, about the election? And he said, we're, but we're going to get that corrected. And maybe he was thinking about the uh, incredibly bad math that suggested that Joe Biden had a one in, what's it four quadrillion chance of winning or something like that. If you don't know math, this is the number that, uh, that uh, I think, uh, President Trump's press secretary was pushing on a lot of the shows a few weeks ago, uh, you know, ludicrous again. But uh, do you think that there's going to be uh, do you think one senator at least is going to join that objections and kind of force a vote on this? Well, when you and I were kind of um, going back and forth about this, you'd mentioned Tuberville. I would say he's the only one that's really spoken out very vocally about this. So I would say if one person was to step forward, it would be Tommy Tuberville. And he also has, you know, he kind of has to, I hate to say this, but I always, I'm so jaded when it comes to this stuff. You know, these these elected officials, especially new ones, feel like they have to make a splash. You know, they feel like they have to get their time and they have to make a name for themselves. And this, by the way, is not like a Republican thing or a Democrat thing. They're all like this. They love to grandstand. I mean, this is what they do. And I think, you know, Tuberville is, you know, he's he's on the scene. And and I feel like maybe he feels this need to make a splash and kind of identify himself. Because as Americans, you know, we 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 like to put ourselves and and our elected officials into boxes. You know, you are this, you are that. And, you know, he wants to make a name for himself as somebody who is in the same box as people like Mo Brooks, Jim Jordan, um, you know, and others like him. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if if he made uh, an objection in the Senate. But, um, you know, he's he's really been the most vocal one and, and he would be my bet as well. You know, whenever I hear about a football coach running for office, I just I anyway, I just it always seems to be an SEC coach. And I, I always assume that if you're an SEC coach, you know, you're going to win your House or Senate election because that's what people know. And it just makes me just question the whole idea of democracy sometimes, because I'm sure, of course, that coaching Auburn and before that, I, I hate to say it, the University of Cincinnati, where I, you know, where I live, uh, uh, of course, qualifies. But I guess, you know, to be fair, it qualifies you every bit as much as being a host of The Apprentice. So there you go. So anyway but uh you don't I didn't think know he was an ohio guy that's interesting well he you know he coached at uh at uh, uc for four seasons and then he he left oh. for, for auburn so yeah whatever but uh <laughs> yeah i i somehow do not think that uh, tommy tuberville is going to be known as a as a great legislator of our times for some reason i don't know call me call me jaded and cynical about this but uh in the end i think what will happen i bet you agree with me on this is that if the Senate is forced into a vote, 
uh, they, there will be uh, enough votes to uphold the democratically elected slate of electors in those states. And, but I, you know, I, I actually don't know. I think that Mitch McConnell is going to be able to bring enough pressure to bear on Tuberville and, and the rest of, of the senators uh, in the GOP coalition to not do that, to not put all of their colleagues in a, in a position where they're going to have to be seen as casting a vote against Donald Trump. So I, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think Mitch McConnell is going to prevail on this, but, but what do you think? Yeah. yeah, he, I mean, you know, um, the Senate just seems to be, I don't, again, I don't want to put the Senate and the house in, in boxes either, but where, whereas the house just seems to be kind of like the wild, wild West, you know, you have these renegade represent, I mean, there are a lot more of them. So there's that, but you know, there just seems to be less control by design in, in the house. Um, you know, you, you have people there, constituencies are are much smaller groups and they have you know fewer people essentially to answer to so there's less control whereas you know in the senate you have these leaders like mitch mcconnell these like storied politicians who again your favorite person he's been there forever he's a dinosaur or whatever you want to say but you know he he understands how this works and you know we've said before a lot like you know we, we've talked about nancy pelosi in in the same way um you know these are people who understand politics they understand how this goes. They don't necessarily take it personally, um, but they understand that there's a strategy that needs to take place. And so, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, Mitch McConnell kind of like, you know, put the hammer down on somebody like Tommy Tuberville and and put pressure on uh, Senate Republicans to, to stay in line. Um, there just there seems to be more control over things like that. There seems to be more like true partisanship in the Senate, especially right now than in the House, which is essentially the wild, wild west. So well, I think it's more fun to watch the House. I, I got to say, I'm not all that certain about my prediction here because I can totally see someone like Tuberville getting a getting the hard sell treatment Maybe. from President Trump and uh, and in the end doing that because boy that just makes you a hero to the to the MAGA to the MAGA you know right uh, Trump supporter type of folks so I can I can maybe see that being fairly alluring to as you pointed out a new person who's been a big fan of Donald Trump up and down the line you know so I I, I don't know I hope I'm wrong about that I don't think it would be a good thing for that to happen but uh, but but we shall see. I don't know. If I think if it did happen, I I would say that would be why it would be to him yeah. trying to make a name for himself yep. and you know trying to essentially put himself into a box because anybody who's ever run for office at least successfully knows that that's what works with voters. You know, if they can identify you um, for better or for worse, then then you will get votes and and it'll be you know essentially that's what you'll be known for. Those are the people that are remembered. And yeah. if he wants to be remembered, which, you know, clearly he does, that's what he'll do. Yeah. So. And and I should say before we move on that I, I admit my bias here. Uh, you know, I have a very strong bias against anyone who was a, an SEC football coach because I am an Ohio State fan. And regularly when my team would get to the big game, some SEC team would just totally wipe us out. So it's hard for me to, to like anything that involves an SEC team or coach or anything like that. And that's just totally my, you know, Ohio State sort of bias uh, coming out. There. You're entitled to that. Yeah, we all you. have our bias. I appreciate that. <laughs> so Bill Barr, I, I hear he's going to be spending more time with his family. <laughs> that's what I heard too, but I don't believe it. Do you? <laughs> no, you know, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, wow. That is, that is something else. Did, yeah. So oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, I, 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 I'm sure you read that resignation letter. I did read the resignation letter and I listened to the uh, tons of praise that was heaped on Bill Barr as he, you know, sort of, well, I guess he hasn't exited yet. I think he's, his official job is done on Wednesday, I believe. Right. Um, so, yeah, so he still has a couple days to not be with his family, but, you know, as he sort of exited proverbially, um, you know, he he resigned amidst rumors that he would either step down or face a firing. And, you know, like you said, he mentioned that, um, you know, he's doing this to spend more time with his family. And that's why he's doing this now before the holidays. But I mean, I think most of us aren't buying it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, he, the praise was heaped on him. Um, Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump, you know, everybody was sort of coming out of the woodwork to heap praise upon him. And, uh, the whole thing just smelled a little fishy to me. Yeah. I don't know about you, Mike. <laughs> yeah. That, that letter was rough to get through. I mean, just it so was. fawning and sickly sweet and that yeah, sort of yeah. thing. But 
Yeah, you know, I, I there's been a lot, especially on the left, sir, well, mainly on the left, criticism of of uh, William of Barr, and I think though I, I've maintained from the beginning that I've never believed that he was in Donald Trump's pocket. I've just always believed that he has a very expansive view of executive power that played very much yeah. into what Donald Trump wants to do. And I think there are a number of instances in which he clearly did not do what Donald Trump wanted him to do, like talk about the Hunter Biden investigation, for instance, before the election, you know, or right. or say things like, well, there's been uh, there's no evidence that there was uh, any sort of election fraud rising to the level that would I'll change the outcome of the election. This is not these are not the actions of somebody who who uh, is in the president's pocket. Now, I, I disagree with Barr on his theory of executive power. I think that presidents have way, way too much power and would just mortify the framers, rightly so. But that doesn't mean he's a corrupt man. I just disagree with him in terms of uh, fundamental principles on that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because watching everything that's happened with Bill Barr um, over the last few years, um, he was somebody I, re I remember when his name was being tossed around um, as, you know, a possible attorney general. Um, I remember people on the left coming out of the woodwork and not and I feel like there was a there was a lot of uh, questioning because he was he was sort of a dyed in the wool Republican. You know, he had served under other Republican uh, presidents and and he'd been, you know, kind of associated with the Bush administration. And, um, you know, I think there were a lot of Democrats who kind of had big question marks over their heads about him. You know, is he somebody who, you know, we can count on? Is he somebody who we can? And I think most Democrats just decided that they, you know, that policy wise, they didn't agree with him. And so they were going to, you know, protest his becoming attorney general, whereas Republicans seemed pretty happy, you know, oh, if Donald Trump, you know, supports him and, and, uh, likes him, then I'm going to support him and like him too, essentially sort of following suit. And it's, it's funny because more so now than ever, and I saw this starting to happen under Obama, I've definitely seen it happen under Trump is, you know, people fall in and out of favor, especially people in this administration so quickly, especially with Republicans. So, you know, I have friends who are, um, you know, far more in the, in the, in the Trump camp than I am, or far more in the Republican, you know, the sort of like Republican, um, like, I guess I, I don't I don't like saying rhino, but I guess that sort sure. of establishment Republican camp. And, you know, it, it depends on the day. You know, you talk to them and, and uh, you know, everything with Hunter Biden, which is supposedly what, what a lot of people are saying is what what led to talk of his resignation or his firing was his uh, sort of unwillingness to discuss Hunter Biden and to delve into that. Um, you know, which angered President Trump and some of the people closest to him. I think, you know, depending on the day, you ask a Republican what they think about Bill Barr and it changes, you know. Yeah. Um, and and I feel kind of like all along, I felt he was an establishment. But like my mind hasn't changed about about Bill Barr. Um, you know, I felt like he was an establishment Republican. I do agree with you that he has a very expansive view of the executive office. And I think that's probably why President Trump gravitated towards him. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's really interesting to, to listen to people talk about Bill Barr, because right now he's probably one of the most reviled people on my side of the yeah. aisle, um, whereas a few weeks ago he wasn't a few. But, you know, p uh, to that point, a lot there are a lot of Republicans, especially from this sort of like MAGA contingency that you know, feel that uh, for a long time he could have been doing more. They were looking to the Durham report, um, you know, and they feel like, you know, now he's he's stood in the way of of the Durham report and he's not done enough and all this other stuff. Where was he in the weeks leading up to the election? So, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the day and my thoughts on him haven't changed. I haven't always been a big fan of his. And that, again, just it drives me nuts because the idea that the person who's in charge of of finding wrongdoing and you know and prosecuting wrongdoing should be a partisan ally of the executive just it seems so fundamentally wrong to me and i've said it a million times probably on the show now but i i so think that the attorney general should be a truly independent person because it's been clear you know i remember back in the obama administration when it was you know loretta lynch and eric holder and just yep. talk about how they were totally just doing the bidding of the president and now you know with with Barr and well sessions well, there not, was his wingman well you know i <laughs> sessions not so much but he lost that job and so it just seems right. to me given this increased politicization that it's just so important that 
people be able to believe in the independence of the Justice Department, and they can't, which is why if I could, you know, change, well, if I could change one, I'd change, I'd change a bunch of things, but if I could change one thing, certainly one thing I would change would be to make the independent, to make the Attorney General truly independent in some way, because I just think this stuff is just, it's just truly corrosive to belief in rule of law, which is just so incredibly important. And that, you know, in terms of why he's leaving, it does seem weird, right? Less than a month before he would be out anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems to me like you think it's because, well, it was either leave or be fired. Now, a lot of folks on the left are saying, well, maybe he's leaving because he thinks that things are going to get really weird and desperate in the weeks, in the next few weeks. And he just doesn't want to be associated with, say, blanket pardons for the president and his family and anyone else and, you know, or whatever kind of weird election stuff that the president might have cooked up and he just doesn't want to have to be in a position to object to that. And so he can just say, well, I don't know, I'm not attorney general. So what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that Barr may have left because he thinks things are going to get really bad in the next month? Um, no, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I understand why, why, especially somebody on the left, if, I mean, again, like I'm, I'm fraught with bias as we all are. So it's, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to put myself in, in the position of somebody from, from the left looking at this, but I guess if the, if I did, if I, the closest I could come to doing it, um, I could see why a Democrat would think that. Um, you know, especially since, um, you know, this this administration has been wildly unpredictable, especially over the past month or so, month and a half, I guess. Gosh, the election was already almost a month and a half yeah. ago. That's insane. But um, no, I, I really do think, you know, based on, you know, the the resignation letter, um, based on, you know, some of the things that Trump's close allies and Trump himself said about Bill Barr. I and, and also just talk. You know, there was a lot of talk coming out of Washington that he would be fired. Um, you know, and again, like I, you know, talk is cheap and you know, I, I yeah, I kind of take things with a with a grain of salt because sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't. But I do think that he was kind of staring at a possible termination. And this may have been a way for him to save face. I mean, even the way that Trump presented it, where he came forward and he said, oh, we had, I can't remember what, what he's a lovely talk or a nice talk or beautiful talk, you know, a Trump word, a Trump, <laughs> a Trumpian phrase. Um, you know, we had this big, beautiful talk or whatever. And, and this, you know, he just heaped on the praise. It sounded like a, sa- a move to save face to me, um, you know, and and I and I understand I understand both though I really do I understand why a Democrat would think that, um, but I do think it was because he knew right. he was going to yeah, get fired. You're right, and kind of related <laughs> that this is off topic a little bit, but related uh, as you know and as listeners know for for the last several weeks. Jay has maintained that he believes Donald Trump will not only be at Joe Biden's inauguration, but is going to preside over the most magnanimous transition, the loveliest, the most wonderful transition of power ever. And I've I've been incredibly skeptical of that. And I wanted to ask I wanted to ask you what what you think about that, because you you obviously do not think that Donald Trump is going to do anything just totally just bonkers. I mean, not more so than already has happened. But do you do you see that happening? I'm wondering, is Jay all alone in this? Or what do you think is going to end up happening with that? I love I love Jay, but I'm going to have to leave him on that island. I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I can join him there. I I don't I, I fall in the middle. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be a situation where all these, like you said, bonkers things are going to happen. And, you know, the, I, I don't think I don't see that happening. But I also don't see this like magnanimous, tra- you know, transition and this like, you know, this like golden ship sailing away. And I don't see that happening either because that's just not Trump. I know that sounds very generalistic and like simple but it, but it's that's just not Trump's style to do something like that I, I you know it would be like a glorious admission of defeat and I don't see Trump doing something like that um you know so no I I don't think it's it's going to be entirely without um you know without some bad blood but I but I don't see you know truly bonkers things happening I the one thing that's although you know to all of that to say that the one thing that um, I've come to expect over the last month and a half is that 
everything I expect never happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can never tell. I think <laughs> so that's always knows? important. Yeah, to put in with President Trump is you never really know what's going to happen because he is so yeah. driven by it seems like whims and urges and gut instincts and and who knows. And honestly, if he if he uh, appeared. Yeah, you know, behind uh, Roberts and and Biden with a with a MAGA hat or something like that, and started talking, it wouldn't it wouldn't shock the hell shocked. out of me, you know. I I'd be you oh. know. So who who knows what'll happen? But we we shall we shall see it. Could it. Be magnanimous. In which case, I would personally apologize to Jay and join him on the you, island. I, me, me too. You were right, but yeah, I I don't I don't know. I don't yeah, think so. But great. we'll see. You know, we'll see. Twenty. It's twenty twenty. It's going to twenty twenty. You know. That's true. <laughs> hey, you know, and I know it's just about the end of this show, but I thought we could. And with our uh, recommendation for this week, we haven't we haven't done that in a little while. So, uh, w- what do you got for us this week, Kristen? Oh my gosh! So i <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've watched this documentary series on Netflix. Um, you can see scenes from it on YouTube if you just if you go on YouTube. But it's it's so good. It's called Ugly Delicious. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. So good. So I, I'm a total foodie. Um, I, I love food, but the one thing that I object to when it comes to, f- to food shows is like the snobbery behind it. Cause I grew up, you know, I grew up in a house that was pretty informal. I'm a sort of informal person and there's so much, you know, I watch these food documentaries on Netflix and stuff and they're so snobby, but ugly, delicious, this famous chef, um, his name is David Chang out of New York. He, he founded like Momofuku and, and, you know, he's, he's super famous, like, you know, James Beard gotcha. winner award. Winner. And he created this, this documentary series. And he basically, if you're a foodie, it's a great escape. He, he basically like dives into different foods and sees how the world eats them, but sort of like removing that snobbery. So like he did an episode on steakhouses and he went to Outback Steakhouse, which I thought was brilliant. (laughs) But like it's it's appreciated because I feel like a lot of food shows just aren't and documentaries aren't accessible for people like me who are pretty casual. You know, I'm not a sommelier. I can't tell the difference between this wine and that wine. But I do know the difference between an Outback Steakhouse steak and, you know, a New York Prime Sure. Yeah. 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 You know, it's 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 one of these documentaries that that I kind of like I I watched on a recommendation and and I got really, really into it. Um, And I've actually gone through it a few times. So I highly recommend it if you're even if you're not a foodie, it's he's so entertaining to watch. He's a lot of fun. That sounds great. Yeah. I especially want to see that steakhouse thing. But uh, yeah, it's it's good. You'll like it. <laughs> even though, even though I'm a vegan, I still dream about steak every once in a while. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, for my recommendations, I'm going to be three really quick things. First is an article from the Atlantic from, I believe it was David Frum called the things Trump got right. Now it is full of left-handed compliments. Uh, and it is, I think it is written in a style that, that I find disappointing, but I think the general point is a good one is that it's very difficult for a president to be an utter failure, no matter what you think of that person. And it kind of goes through some things that you can at least possibly give Donald credit, some uh, Donald Trump, some independent credit for doing or trying that maybe seem to work out okay. And by, by independent credit, I mean, not like, well, a lot of conservative judges, because that would have happened no matter what Republican president were elected, but things that are attributable more directly to Donald Trump. And I didn't agree with all of them. And like I said, I found the tone to be off-putting, though I can see it was designed to appeal to people, you know, kind of of the left. But I think it's worth checking out just as a reminder that, you know, hey, yeah, he's he maybe maybe we think he's awful. And I certainly do. Worst president of my lifetime. But uh, that doesn't mean that anyone is 100 percent wrong on, on everything, as I've argued uh, you know, previously in the show. So that's one thing. Secondly, uh, the bipartisan politics Reddit group. Now I mentioned this before because actually I started this group, uh, and uh, ever since I left it, I, I still check in, but I'm no longer a moderator. Ever since I left it, it got a lot better. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what that means, but I, I especially want to mention uh, every week well, one of the moderators, uh, uh, Mevred puts together these amazing show notes for all of our shows with like a a full outline of everything we cover in detail, bullet pointed with links to related stories. It's just, it's just really, it blows my mind. It's totally worth checking out. And I just, it's a, it's a great thing. So check out the group. Like I said, I'm no longer formally associated, but I, I, uh, 
put in my two cents every once in a while as well. And then finally, one really quick thing, if you are in the if you are in the market for a last minute sort of stocking stuffer thing, I have mm-hmm. recently discovered lock laces. Are you familiar with lock laces? No, but tell me because oh I my need God. stocking stuffers. Oh tell my me. God. They're so they're so great. I, they've changed my world literally. I hate tying my shoes. I always do. And yeah. so they're these like elastic laces things that you put in and they just tighten with like a like a drawstring sort of thing, basically system. And I was skeptical, but I totally love them. Every time I have to tighten or untighten my shoes, it's just, they're great. They're like about eight bucks on Amazon. It just, I bought multiple pairs now and they make me so happy, a weird little thing. And so I totally recommend lock laces. I just Googled it. I'm totally going to buy these. They are, they're awesome. I yeah. am. I'm totally, my, my wife looked at me and said, oh, what's next? Velcro? But I said, no, <laughs> no, you don't understand. They're great. But anyway, they, I, I love them. So with that, I, I know we're, we're running a little long, but I should mention that there's a bunch of stuff we're going to get to on our bonus show, which we will record in just a few minutes, but will come out actually on Wednesday. And that is, as I mentioned, Festivus. It's a holiday I celebrate, at least personally. As a, uh, It's kind of a, more of a Gen X maybe holiday. I don't know. But anyway, uh, Seinfeld related. We're going to be talking about, let's see, those lawsuits against Google. It seems like a week doesn't go by where there's not another tech lawsuit. Uh, and Tulsi Gabbard and a very interesting piece of legislation that she introduced about uh, banning abortions after a fetus can feel pain. Uh, maybe we'll get into the Dr. Jill Biden thing and also the Cleveland Indians becoming, at least for now, the Cleveland baseball team. So uh, until they get a new name. Uh, and if you are a supporter, you will get all that in the midweek feed. And if you're not, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and you can get all set up with that. And again, if you can't afford to become a supporter, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you hooked up with all of our content. Finally, something that doesn't cost anything, subscribing to the show, leaving ratings and reviews, and especially, really, this matters a lot, sharing your favorite episodes on social media, email, however you want to do that. Also, there is, again, that bipartisan politics subreddit you might want to check out. There's our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with the show in two weeks. We hope all of you have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate. We hope it's a great and safe and wonderful one. And we will see you in 2021.